Tonight, from 6 to 7 p.m. on Hemispheres, we hear the voices of indigenous women from around the world who are working to address the challenges of climate change in their communities. Stay tuned. Welcome to Hemispheres. I'm your host, Nikki Kaiser. For the next hour, we'll hear about grassroots projects in agriculture, finance, forest rights, community development, reforestization, indigenous rights, and the women who make it all happen. They're inspiring examples of creative change. With me in the studio to talk about these women and fill us in is Terry Odenall. Welcome, Terry. She's the executive director and CEO of Global Green Grants, whose headquarters is right here in Boulder, Colorado. And she'll give us a background to the issue of climate change activism and introduces us to the women who will speak for their communities. So welcome, to Terry. Uh, thank you for being here this evening. Thank you so much, Nikki, for having me on Hemispheres. I think all of us know that we're already living with the adverse effects of climate change, and it's only going to get worse unless we act. Uh, for women in regions around the world that are hardest hit by climate change, this means, in some cases, forcible displacement, devastating cycles of drought and devastating floods that ruin harvests, water shortages, increases in tropical diseases, and less food and nutrition for women and their families. Um, for people in the global north, this also we are also facing extreme weather and fewer resources, which leads to more competition, and uh, we fear unrest and ultimately violence. But because women are half the world, uh, uh, we also want to raise their voices around solutions for climate change. And women do have solutions. They're already implementing them at the most grassroots level in their communities, uh, the solutions that women often offer are inexpensive, excuse me, inexpensive, and they're also scalable uh, compared to the really huge funds that are coming out of the international organizations, uh, and we're not seeing very much effect, uh, good effects from it. So a few examples are that women are organizing and protesting to defend their lands from land grabbing of all types. They're saving seeds. They're using... Um, root crops that are more resistant, traditional root crops that are more resistant to drought. They're also using uh, solar panels on their huts, energy-efficient cook stoves, and a whole variety of solutions. So we have just hosted, along with the International Network of Women's Funds, a summit on women and climate. We held it in Bali. In fact, if I'm suffering a little from jet lag, so forgive me if I, um, if I sound tired, but it was really exciting to hear the inspiring stories of these women, some of whom you have recorded here. Why is, uh, are women disproportionately affected by the um, effects of climate change? Well, there's a considerable amount of research about this, but in those countries where women's rights are the least good, women are four times more likely than men to die in, a, in the case of a natural disaster or a climate-related disaster as compared to those countries where women's rights are roughly more equal or better than men's, where they have an equal chance of surviving a devastating effect. So that's just one statistic mm -hmm. uh, 
for example. And often they're um, in charge of agriculture, and so agriculture is very affected by that. We'll hear about that. Yes, yeah. and all around the world, women are the, the vast uh, number of farmers. And although we think of this differently, it's actually the case that women are in charge of farming. And for providing food for their families, so, and the health and well-being of children are directly affected, of course, as well. Well, I know a lot of these women make a nickel squeak. <laughs> right. Um, let's hear first from Sandela Lopez. She's an indigenous Miskito Indian living in Honduras, and she's organized groups of volunteer women to address community-defined environmental problems. She speaks here through a translator, explaining why women in her village are concerned about the effects of climate change. So let's have a listen and then hear your reaction, Terry. One thing that's happened is that we don't have a distinct winter or a distinct summer anymore, and so we don't know when to plant and we don't know when the harvest is going to come, and as women, we're responsible for this. Por lo tanto, las mujeres estamos sufriendo women were suffering a lot from these changes and we used to be able to rely on a certain level of, of production and the pr- level of production has has decreased a great deal. There really isn't much work in our community. It's mostly around different forms of fishing. Even the, the maritime fish that we're accustomed to fishing are being overexploited by commercial fishers that come from different departments. The men that do deep diving fishing often get injured or even killed from going to such great depths, and that leaves widows or women with disabled husbands, and so the burden of work falls on and caring for the family falls on the women. So for this reason, it was incumbent upon us to organize and figure out what we could do for our community. Among the things we did was to decide to deal with the issue of the trash, the garbage, and other women have been working on reforestation. There's all kinds of trash, old tires, there are plastic bottles, there's oil from the fishing boats, there's trash from the fish as well, the ones that have been thrown out or cleaned. Additionally, in this lagoon, because it's kind of stagnant, also a, a big problem is mosquitoes. In 2006, they began their program of um, dealing with solid, solid waste um, with a small grant from... Programa Pequeñas Donaciones, PPD. Small funds or small donations. De Naciones Unidas. From the United Nations. Y con, the women um, felt useless, they had very low self-esteem, and we used these small funds for training to help uh, to help motivate them and and make them feel more useful. Miren, las mujeres ahora se siente que ellas, ellas son útiles, que ellas pueden apoyar a sus maridos... They can help support their families. They're cleaning up around the lagoons, the streets, the, the green areas, so they, it's visible, the things they're doing. And at the end of each month, they get a, a little money. It's not much, but it's something. It's had health impacts as well. There's much less diarrhea. Um, there are fewer fevers. There's less malaria. And also, um, kids aren't getting um, kind of skin rashes that they used to get. There are 60 women, and there's not enough work for all of them, but what they do is take turns basically doing the work. In their group, they have single mothers, they have older women, um, they have widows, and they make sure that sort of every group and every woman gets a chance to contribute. 
y la basura nosotros lo sacamos de, de la ciudad. They're moving the um, trash seven kilometers away now. They used to burn it right within the city town limits, and that also caused health problems because of the smoke and people were having respiratory difficulties. The trash in the lagoon used to kill the fish, and, and the river affected the river flow. Not only have they organized this in her community, there's six municipalities in total. La basura que estaba en las calles no se mira, se mira limpio, limpio, limpio. And the streets now are just super clean, very, very clean. Other women in the groups are doing reforestation of fruit trees, of trees grown for wood, all different kinds of trees. And one thing they're seeing is that the rivers that were drying up are now being replenished because of the reforestation. Y otras mujeres tienen otros. And another development has been that some women are starting small sewing businesses, sewing like school uniforms, and so that's another source of income for them as well. De Mimat están haciendo de ecoturismo. So an ecotourism business has also um, been developed by her organization we called Mimac, and they have constructions such as these made out of teak, and so tourists can come there and eat and sleep and spend some time. So, Terry, uh, how critical is the situation in Honduras? Well, the situation in Honduras is quite dire for a whole number of reasons. There was a coup there a few years ago. It's now a repressive dictatorship, uh, which is not uh, paying much attention to the needs of the people. Also, in terms of changed weather conditions, uh, Honduras is increasingly uh, having more uh, hurricanes. And we, you know, isn't isn't Sindela uh, just an inspiring <laughs> woman? She's a treasure. She, yeah, she's actually fairly low-key. She doesn't promote herself at all, but she's clearly the leader of her organization, MIMOT. Uh, Global Green Grants Fund, which, as you mentioned, is right here in Boulder, Colorado, has been funding MIMOT for almost a decade. And uh, as Sindela herself said, in the beginning, she and the women in the community were concerned about the trash, uh, kind of just the same way that we think about recycling around here. But after Hurricane Felix, which was just de- had a devastating effect, uh, we, uh, we were actually able to fund her organization to help with some both uh, relief to families in the area and, as she said, replanting of trees, rebuilding of houses, and uh, what... Global Green Grants does not consider itself a disaster funder. Our goal is to mobilize resources for environmental sustainability and social justice. We want to protect and transform our world. But because of changing climate, we've found there's an increasing need for us to fund after disasters, and especially because we have advisors and grantees all around the world who are already in place to um, to help with that. Just say a tiny bit about Green Grant's philosophy, because I find it very different than some other um, nonprofits that are working abroad in terms of your hands-off kind of policy and how you administer these things through regional advisors. Yes, thank you. We actually believe in what sometimes we call turning philanthropy upside down. We mean that in two different ways. One is that the decision makers around where the money goes are generally activists, 
uh, who are organized into regional boards all around the world, who are well connected uh, to uh, environmental and social justice work in the region. And they are recommending the groups that should get grants. So instead of a donor in the northern hemisphere deciding what are the most pressing needs in the southern hemisphere, which is where we mostly fund in the so-called global south or developing countries. All our decision makers are there on the ground. We also at Global Green Grants really value local knowledge. In other words, we think the experts are at the most local level. And so bringing that back to women and climate change, uh, because women are the most affected by climate change, not that their families and men in the world in general aren't, but because they're most effective, affected, they often come up with the most effective solutions mm -hmm. as well. And I think Sandela is one example of a leader in her community who's organized, as she said, around 60 women who now do a variety of activities. In the beginning, I don't think they thought they were responding to climate change, but now they're very clear, you know, that the climate has changed and they have to do things differently. Yeah, I find that piece very unique about Global Green Grants, that it's not only administered locally, but the ideas themselves come up through through the grassroots. Right. There's so many programs that you've got going that um, that turn very small grants into amazing projects that are ongoing projects, as you say, not, not usually disaster-related. Well, um, let's turn to East Africa for a bit. The extractive industries and their pollution are creating... Uh, increasing problems in eastern uh, Africa, in Uganda and Kenya, as more oil reserves are discovered. Violet, Violet Maturu, have I said that right? Yes. Because I think you've yes. met her right, um, is organizing women um, to work collaboratively and use resources wisely and protect forest resources in general for everyone's use. So I know that you visited Violet um, in her Karindi village in Kenya. Uh, could you describe her village to us and tell us a little bit about her, and then we'll hear her story and her words. I'd be delighted to. Violet is one of the first Green Grants advisors that I met when I became executive director five years ago, and I visited the East Africa Board, which covers the countries of Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania. Violet's been one of our longest-lasting advisors, and she's an environmental activist herself, a very dynamic, smart woman. And she has advised a series of grants in central Kenya, uh, especially in many parts of the world, men have out-migrated. In other words, they've left their villages to go to the cities, to get jobs in the cities. And uh, I think their original intent was to send money back home and try and make a better life for themselves. But often this leaves women and their children and the elderly and infirm back in the village uh, on their own. So women in East Africa are primarily responsible for agriculture. And this is where I saw firsthand what I call a kind of integrated approach to dealing with climate change. So Violet is the one who, we call it, advised these grants, and she mentors the groups of women who, who are implementing them. Uh, so in, in village after village, it's like a network of villages, uh, you will see that women are using traditional seeds. 
that they're experimenting with different types of irrigation. Some of it's just water collection, like catching the rainwater when it comes down, but other of it, others of it is trying drip agriculture, uh, tr uh, trying, uh, excuse me, drip irrigation and other forms of irrigation. And at the same time that these traditional seeds and roots are being used, they're also experimenting with modern technology. So that's an example where I saw solar panels on the thatched roofs mm -hmm. of huts um, and where inside the huts, women are working, they're actually cooking with uh, cook stoves that are more energy efficient. One thing that happens, I think we've all heard this before, women have to walk further and further uh, with uh, climate change to both collect water and to collect firewood. And in many societies around the world, firewood is still the main source for cooking for uh, and for heating and for creating charcoal. So these energy-efficient stoves actually use less wood, and they cause less pollution within inside the home, so they're better for women's health as well. So uh, I, I see that as integrated, where uh, both traditional techniques are being utilized and sort of the most modern technology. And one, one minor example that really impressed me was a group of women in one of these villages who uh, have a solar array, and with that they are, uh, they've started a business and they're charging the cell phones of everybody around in the county or the province. Mm -hmm. I've heard that in many, many countries now they're doing that. Um, any way they can generate uh, uh, electricity is also a form of income, small yes. income. But yes, yeah. that's right. Even renting tools. I know in Uganda they rent tools, little organizations. Right. <laughs> um, well, I love that story about using both modern and traditional techniques and things that are indigenous to a certain area, rather than us sitting back in uh, Boulder, Colorado and designing stoves that we come up with for our ideas of what they might enjoy or might be able to use. So it does seem more appropriate. And I know um, water uh, and food, well, wood collection is, uh, is a problem because of deforestation. It's uh, creating carbon into the atmosphere. It's not good for the health of people who breathe it from the stoves and so forth. So it's multiple levels of, of improving things if they can get away from, from wood-burning stoves. Tell us a little bit, be our eyes as we would walk into this village. How, how would you describe Karindi? Well, women are dressed in very traditional garb, and they knew we were coming to visit. So the, in every village that I visited in Kenya, there was singing and dancing as mm. we entered. I mean, we felt incredibly welcomed. Uh, one thing that you notice in these villages is there is lush agriculture. Like, whatever they're doing, it seems to be working as compared to some of the barren miles and miles of dusty roads that we drove through uh, to get to the villages. Generally, these villages are very well organized as well. And while there are a few men around, it's mostly all women. Women who are the leaders, women who are making the decisions, women who are doing the farming and uh, they generally would serve us food as the first that they themselves had grown and um, they often were keeping chickens as well uh, and uh, so on in fact I was given a chicken in one village <laughs> as a gift and that was a bit of an issue <laughs> 
<laughs> I gave it away to a child in another village. But anyway, well I hope that gives you a sense of it. And women are uh, wearing, you know, their their very traditional, very colorful um, clothing. So long, long petite. Yes, that's, yes. It's folded the skirt. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And um, where is Karindi? Is it in the north? It's in central Kenya. Central Kenya. All right. Very interesting. And is there, how close is the forest to where they are? The forest is nearby, and there are some parts of the forest that are considered sacred forest as well. And we did visit a sacred forest which women are protecting. Uh, so there's been a lot of deforestation, but as we know, especially uh, in Kenya, there's been a lot of replanting of trees, uh, restoration as well. So the women in the village see the value of the forest remaining as is, some portions. Yes, absolutely. Interesting. All right, well, let's hear her tell her story. Violet starts by explaining the role of women to improve the environment and strengthen community development and some of the reactions from the men. It's kind of funny. Um, and she also describes women's uh, leadership skills being developed. Uh, she uses she gives an example of addressing high levels of fluorine uh, in her wa- in their water as one of the projects that she'd like to talk about. Women are very dependent directly on the environment. Our countries are main very agricultural. Like eighty eighty percent of the communities rely on agriculture. So they rely on the fertility of the soil. They rely on water resources. So that's why now with the effects of climate change, women are being directly affected. It is the women who till the land, then plant a crop. So when there's a drought, they lose that. They they lose a crop. And yet women in most cases are not empowered enough to be in a position to influence decisions. Decisions that then affect the, the environment that they are dependent on. So one of my personal sort of commitment is trying to get women to participate in in decision making. So when you have laws that say community participation, like let's say in forest, and one of the things with the current community forestry associations is that they are very dominated by men. And these are usually the older men who are mismanaging those associations because they hope to make money out of them, like if the government is going to support them. Women are supposed to come in as user groups. But many times even the women are not organized into those groups. So it's difficult to assist them so that their voices can be heard. In fact, right now there's an ongoing project that I've been invited to be part part of, and it's a network of community forestry associations in a county, one county, which has a lot of forest. It's in the upper catchment of the second longest river in the country, that's the Athi River. And one of the things that was being raised is that they're dominated by these old men who throw out the constitution, because they're supposed to hold elections every three years. Many times they don't. So one of those old men, because they were challenged, how come the governance of these groups is so bad and that's stunting the growth of the groups? Then the man said that, you know, some of us are like fig trees. You know, a fig tree is very, it's a symbol in, our, in my community. A fig tree, you were never supposed to cut it down. It was, a, it was like a sacred, it's a sacred tree. And it grows huge and it eats up others. You know, it also, it's also parasitic eh, as a tree. So it also eats other trees. 
and it's dominant and it grows huge on the blood of others, literally. So this one old man was like, you know, we are like a fig tree and blah, blah, blah. So we are like, now we are thinking how to dislodge this fig tree yeah. because his leadership, the leadership is not, like they were saying, 100% of the community forestry associations, and yet they don't have the vision. They are stunting the growth of the groups. So we are strategizing as we speak. How do we ensure that we change that leadership to allow women's voices and the youth also to come in. So for me, the work I do is to try and, and balance this, this power relations because also women, they are being used by some of these men also to tyrannize others. So to start seeing these roles and start seeing how do you balance these powers for the sake of the community mm-hmm. and for the sake of the, the, the natural resource like the forest. So I try to bring resources and connections like I go and get like the government people to come and explain to them about the new law. So I bring resources. So I was wondering if you can share, there was a story that inspires you, that um, you've seen a great impact. We're working in a community where they had problems of too much fluoride in their drinking water. So it destroyed the teeth of the community. So we're assisting those, that community to draw water from uh, forests which then will flow by gravity and that will provide water to the community. But for me, the grant that I feel has really been, a, whatever, it's been very inspiring. Is Within that community, there's a woman, she's called Pauline. And Pauline, when we were struggling to implement that project, has been very supportive. She's a member of the Community Forestry Association. And she joined because she's quite poor. So she needs to go and gather firewood from the forest. And the only way now they're allowing communities to go into the forest like for firewood is by being members of the Community Forestry Association. So she's been a member, an active member, and she's from this village. So she's been very supportive as we are working with the community to implement the Big Water Project. And at some point there was a lot of petty politics within the community, but she stood by us and allowed us even like to store materials at her home. And I don't know, I think at some point people were almost like laughing at her or us because they didn't think the project would take off because it, had, it was being undermined by the more elite within the community. Pauline is a single mother and she's brought up her kids. So she lives in her like ancestral land, the land from her family. She didn't move away and lives next to her brother. So we felt, how do we like show our appreciation of the support she's given us at that community level? We linked her with, there's a group, it's a youth group called the Karinda Young Volunteers so that we could construct for her a biogas unit because she has two cows. So we then found the people who would construct. So using the cow dung, she's able to get biogas, which she should use for her cooking. She called me like two days before I came for this conference. And she says, finally, she's able to turn on her, her biogas. And she was so excited. She said, tonight we cooked with the biogas. So I was very excited because in that area, people have cows and livestock. And they don't know this is a simple technology, but it's too expensive for most communities. So Pauline, is, she was among the poorer within the community. But now having that biogas, you know, she's able to also now cook with gas. So it's been a very interesting collaboration with, between the youth and and the women. And then because the project has now really taken off, the water project, when we get visitors with their big vehicles from the big city, they come and park outside her house. So it's boosted her standing within the community. 
And it also made other people join the Community Forestry Association because some people are just shunning it. And we told them, no, 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 you have to join because that way it's easier to then have policies that you, or, or even bylaws about how the forest will be used when they are part of that group. When they stay outside, they are then very difficult to control. So it has also helped in the community cohesion and, and they are now very active trying to make sure the project succeeds. So Violet's project is mitigating climate change because she's using clean technology, just like we were speaking about earlier. And she's using the slurry uh, to fertilize her vegetables, which is amazing. And um, it's also building leadership, you know, and pulling the community together so that she's getting buy-in from the old and the young to support these new policies. She's a rock star. (laughs) Yeah, isn't Violet terrific? As our advisor, and like many of our advisors, she's a kind of an organizer as well, so that she's organizing women in villages uh, to take more leadership. She's also passionate about watersheds, and I know many of your listeners probably know this, but when forests are healthy, then watersheds are healthier, and then uh, the water on which many communities depend is is actually better to to drink and to use for agriculture and more plentiful uh, to use for agriculture. So so she's doing multiple things that help. Um, I don't know how we're doing on time, but I have a little story about men that I could tell either now Let's or after the break. Let's save that for just after the break. Yeah, I'd love to hear it. And um, she she would be the woman for the job. I mean, she's a, a wildlife biologist and has an MBA, and, right. and yet she's close to the land and close to the people and so forth. So and she, she grew up in a village. I mean, she's one of the rare people who did get advanced, women who have gotten advanced education. time is 6.30. You're listening to KGNU Boulder, Denver. Hemispheres is our show. We'll come back after a short music break. Stay tuned to the second half when we'll hear about, well, a story about men, as I guess is coming up. And we'll hear of some stories of great personal risk from these female environmental activists, if you will. Stay tuned and enjoy the music from Kalamatan.
Welcome back to Hemispheres. You are listening to Kalamatan, Dalek Ritual and Festival Music. It's a Smithsonian Folkways production CD, so that's a compilation. And that particular cut was a dance song by Kenya Umak Jalan. And they're singers of the Desa Jamar Baru on the Atan River in East Kalamatan in Indonesia, obviously. So that brings us to yet another story. My guest this evening is Terry Odendal of Global Green Grants from right here in Boulder. We're hearing from women activists from around the world who are working on issues of climate change in their communities, sometimes at great personal risk. Um, what are some of the risks that environmental activists take in their work, and um, is there violence against women who bring about change or are protecting their community's natural resources? Unfortunately, at Global Green Grants, we are seeing uh, an increase in what we're calling the criminalization of activism, so that people all around the world, uh, but especially in certain countries that are less open to protest of any kind, uh, if, if you're an environmentalist, then you're labeled a criminal. Often you there are threats against you, actual violence against you. It's often pu- perpetrated by large transnational corporations that are coming into regions and land grabbing. But uh, when we're talking about women resource rights activists, that violence takes a different shape. So women are often raped. Uh, women's children and families are threatened. Uh, sometimes with um, human rights defenders, one of the things that you can do is, uh, especially if it's a man, you you can uh, provide him safe haven in another country, take him to another country. But women who often have children uh, are not willing to leave their children to gain safe haven in another place. Uh, so the threats against women are different but uh, than men, 
and the same as men. So women have been murdered who are trying to protect their communities from mines and dams and deforestation of all types for things like monocrops, palm uh, plantations, palm oil plantations, and so on. At the summit on women and climate, we knew that we were bringing a few women human rights defenders there, and we had as a sub-theme the criminalization of activism and how it particularly affects women, but we were actually um, somewhat stunned to find that almost every grassroots woman leader that we brought to the summit has uh, suffered from threats uh, physically to herself, uh, to her family, and to her life. A couple of women at the summit actually have death threats against them, and uh, so we're not publishing their names or where they're from and so on. Uh, The stories are are extremely grim. Uh, Recent statistics, which the statistics are not really good, but I want to just tell a little bit of a story on myself. I went to a conference in Mexico City that I went to because some friends urged me to go. It was on women human rights defenders, and I was personally quite interested, but I thought I'm going more for myself than I am for green grants. Yet when I got there, I found that the largest number of women human rights defenders in Mesoamerica are actually resource rights defenders. So 40% of the women at threat are not just uh, advocating for reproductive rights or for uh, their own health rights or because they're, uh, they're advocating for lesbian and trans um, identities, uh, which we often think of women's rights activists as being more engaged in those kinds of activities. Actually, there are more women's rights advocates who are defending their land and their territory and their families from environmental devastation. Do we have time for me to tell that brief story having to do with... Absolutely. um, I just wanted to say that Violet, who was telling us a little bit about how how she needs to deal with men and women in different villages in Kenya are dealing with men who sometimes are present and sometimes aren't. And all, um, sometimes uh, another thing that happens with natural disasters uh, is that whenever there's any kind of pressure, there's more violence against women, just to bring that up. Uh, but uh, at the Summit on Women and Climate, uh, we uh, fully understand and everybody endorsed that all the solutions, women don't hold all the solutions. We just want to raise women's voices uh, so that the solutions they do hold uh, get the kind of funding that they need and the incentive. Um, Out of about 100 participants, uh, just about 10% of them, 10 of them were actually men. And of all those men, only one kind of misbehaved a little bit. By that I mean... um, He dominated the conversation. He would always say, in conclusion, we should, and so on and so forth. So people were getting somewhat irritated with him, although also being sort of supportive and sympathetic to him. Violet took him aside to talk to him, and then she self-organized a workshop for the men, which was called The Blunders That Men Make. And she t- <laughs> she just, uh, I mean, it's so ingrained in certain cultural traditions that men are the decision 
decision makers or that men are the ones that speak up instead of women. And Violet is taking that yeah. on in her own country of Kenya, and she took it on at the summit as well. She found a teachable moment and wouldn't let go, sounds That's like. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's great. Well, let's hear the story of one activist, Mama Aleta of Indonesia. Here's her personal account of taking on mining in her village. She speaks with the help of a translator. Traditionally, women know where the traditional plants, what and where the traditional medicinal plants are, the herbs, yeah? They also know which plants can be used for their, their, to, to, to dye their, to, to color their weaving cloth. And which plants are, were used for vegetables. So these are, these are the resources that the women know. And with the entry of the commercial monoculture plantation, which cut down the forest, and the entry of mining companies, all these were, are lost. So these are the resources on which the women depend for their life. And so if women are taught to map the remaining plants for, for these resources, it would help them a lot. Another important aspect of mapping is to reduce conflicts. In, in the olden days, uh, the rights over the land used to be communal. But then the state land agency come in and help people to certify, create certificates for you know, land, land rights certificates on an individual basis. And uh, this has created uh, a number of conflicts about where your land boundaries are actually. And it has also created a situation where people can now sell lands. And because they can sell lands, they tend to uh, uh, over go over the boundaries just to be able to sell the land. So the mapping is important in that aspect, to, to reduce this kind of uh, uh, problems. We only need small grants, and we need them for productive economic empowerment activities. Because if people have income from the local production, uh, then they will not think of selling off their land then this uh, economic productivity activities can help to sustain the local food resources. Then they will not think about trying to get in industries from outside so that they can have jobs in the village. So that's the basic message, that small grants are needed for productive economic activity to empower the people. That was Aleta Ban of Indonesia mentioning a project that she's involved with in, which seems simple and effective. She explained the importance of mapping where specific plant species are located that have medicinal and commercial uh, value. And through deforestation and mining activities, many are gone. So it's all the more important to be able to preserve what they do have left. Um, but some do remain, for example, to... Um, to be used as co for coloring cloth that they use to uh, make and then sell. So um, now we'll go to the piece I had spoken of. This is, again, Mama Aleta going on about um, her personal account of taking on the mining in her village and how that affected her family and so forth. Terry? Uh, Nikki, if I might just add that last year, Mama Aleta won the very prestigious Goldman Environmental Prize 
uh, f so for all of Asia, she was the one grassroots activist who was recognized for her tremendous work it, throughout Asia. So as you hear this story, uh, you'll see why she got the prize. In the course of my work to defend the environment, women's rights and indigenous people's rights, I face a lot of threats, one of which is being intimidated by security officers when they say that I should not continue doing what I'm doing. The kind of threats are like this. She has been threatened with imprisonment if she goes against any kind of development in her area. And the police have also come to her house and say that you will be uh, taken to court for violating uh, uh, state laws. And then there were some talks, mercenaries, paid people, who she doesn't know who paid them, that threw stones into her house in the city. And uh, she was threatened if she comes back to the house, she will be uh, continuously under attack. She was also pursuing her higher education in the college. And so several thugs came into her class and uh, took away her books and burned them and told her that you should not come back to college. If you come back, we will kill you. I felt like my children were also under threat when they go to school. So um, I removed them from school and sent them back to the village to go to school there. So my husband had to go with them to take care of them. I myself had to flee to the forest uh, in order to avoid uh, further threats. If I tried to go home, people would be throwing stones at the house. So um, many window glass windows in my house are now broken. I have not fixed them until now. And in those days, if I wanted to meet my children and husband, I had to do it uh, at night in secluded places where nobody would know that I have met them. In June 2006, she tried once to go back to her house and some people came in and threatened that uh, we will kill you if you come back and we will burn down your house. So since then, she fled into the forest, and for a, a full year, she didn't go back to her house. When we filed a lawsuit against the head of the district for, for uh, permitting the mining companies to operate, during the first day of the court session, uh, five women, including myself, and uh, one man, were beaten up in front of the uh, the prosecutor and the uh, the the judge. They were they they, they told these uh, six people not to go ahead with the lawsuit. Setelah itu kami they uh, revoked the lawsuit. They did not sue the head of the district, but instead they took another course. They occupied the mining areas. She decided to live in the village, but she had to move from one house to another house so that uh, people don't know where she's staying uh, while they were strategizing on how to stop the mining companies. She and the community knew that they could create a change 
when the first uh, mining company closed down. They began their action in 1995 up to 19 uh, up to 2000 when the first company left the area. And during those five years, they could not plant anything because all they did was protest against the mining companies. So once the, one of the mining companies left, they uh, reclaimed the mining area and they started planting food crops. And uh, at that time, the, the, the rains were not very heavy, so they could uh, start their dry land farming. After one year, they could they could see that the uh, water table in the spring sources have gone up so the the water was coming back so for for them that was the change that one uh, the mining company did close down one by one and that they could reclaim the land for their farming percaya ibu sepakat the people who manage the food who are very related to the resources to water to farming providing the cook food to the family are the women it is the women who will suffer in terms of uh, trying to get food resources and to fulfill the needs of her families that means that we need to empower women so that that they can become the real defenders of the environment and natural resources So this really was a success for her village in Timor, Indonesia. Describe her. I, I oh, picture this very diminutive person. She's a slight person. woman. She's not tall. Uh, she's an indigenous. She comes from the Mola, M-O-L-L-A, tribe. She, uh, you heard her speaking her own language, but she's a powerful speaker when she begins speaking and obviously an incredible leader she basically stopped four different mines uh, from going in around and near her community and the way she did it she described it but i'm not sure if if it came out as clearly uh, she and a group of women every day for almost a year went and blocked the access to the area where the the companies wanted to have the mines and what they did was they sat and they wove all day long so they were making their traditional cloth which she wears a kind of a turban a multicolored turban around her head and when she was talking earlier about the plants that they collect they're both medicinal and they use them as dyes for the fabrics, the threads that they're weaving into the fabrics. So she's wearing a turban on her head, and then she's wearing what we might think of as a sarong, although she's not um, she's not mainstream Indonesian. She's an indigenous uh, person. So anyway, just an incredible, incredibly inspiring leader who was able to stop big corporations from coming in and grabbing land. I think one of the things that her story points out is the collusion that you often find between the state or governments and these uh, corporations. Uh, the governments are more or less inviting the corporations in to take away their own people's lands. And also, I just like to raise this issue of so-called development which is mostly a very Western Northern notion 
that development which is really only going to benefit the companies and the shareholders of the companies and not the people who are actually living very good lives, collecting food, growing food from forests, growing food, sustainable agriculture where they feed their own families, but then their lands are taken away from them. They have no way to grow food. They have no jobs. And there's a whole um, sort of spiritual dimension that Mama Aleta didn't get into in these particular remarks, but is very important to indigenous communities throughout the world and in her part of West Timor in particular, where they believe everything, a rock, a tree, has a spirit, and that the mining itself is violating not just Mother Earth, but the multiple spirits that inhabit Mother Earth. It must be quite sad for them to see their land transformed that way. It stripped. is, but this is a positive story where she, where uh, she and the women in multiple communities were actually able to stop the mines. Unfortunately, it's the story that's uh, something of an exception because most of the time these big multinational efforts uh, prevail and the kinds of violence and threats that are perpetrated against those that are trying to save their own territories are unsuccessful, I'm sorry to say. Um, I just wanted to say a brief thing about um, mapping, which you talked about in the earlier segment. Uh, We have done a lot of funding out of Global Green Grants of these types of efforts where communities are able to show where their forests, their territories that they've stewarded for oftentimes centuries, once they're able to demarcate them, then that gives them the legal basis to uh, to say that they own the land in a communal manner. Mama Aleta and some other of the grassroots women leaders who came to the summit had a lively discussion about whether or not they should be advocating for individual ownership on the part of women. In many parts of the world, as you know, women don't own, can't own land legally, or whether they should be advocating for communal or uh, ownership. And Mama Aleta is one who did all the work for communal uh, ownership of, of the interesting. territory. Interesting, yeah. Uh, it must be an interesting debate. Well, during the conference in Bali that you just got back from, and that I know Green Grants was a part of making happen, were strategies shared between the folks? I imagine it was quite empowering just to hear each other's stories. Did they also go away with a um, with some new ideas? Well, the uh, summit was co-sponsored by the International Network of Women's Funds and Global Green Grants. And the reason we did it is to try and bring the environmental movement together with the women's rights movement. Often these movements work in a parallel manner, but they don't work together. And yet we know that all the problems we're facing worldwide are interrelated. Uh, The grassroots women that came to the conference had the opportunity to share their stories with each other and learn from each other. And they said that that was one of the best parts of the summit. The funders who were there, whether they were from a women's fund in Nepal or in Bolivia, or one of Green Grant's advisors from, as it happens, Bolivia, an indigenous woman from Bolivia, uh, our goal was to get these 
activists to begin working together across social movements. And I think we saw the beginning of that, at least 10 projects uh, in uh, that many parts of the world uh, were initiated as a result of the summit. And hopefully I'll be able to come and tell you more about how those projects are proceeding in coming years. I would like that very much. And there are many more women that we could uh, feature, if you will, on a segment, another segment of Hemispheres to look at the um, the rich voices of the women who have come forward and met with each other. It must have been an amazing conference. For people who would like more information about Global Green Grants, let's give your website, greengrants.org. Yes. Right? And you can see projects from all around the world, not just involving women. Yeah. On the website, you can literally see almost everything we fund, except in the case where the safety of the grantee might be in danger. So some of these cases having to do with human rights defense, uh, you won't see that listed. We raise all the money every year that we give away. 75% of our funding goes directly to these types of inspiring grassroots groups and women that you've heard speaking tonight. Well, hopefully we can post some of these um, interviews that you took at the conference um, on your website so that people can access uh, more of them. I know we're just doing little clips of, of, uh, of what they wanted to say here and there, and I imagine that there's a lot of rich things to learn and to be inspired by by hearing more of the the full interviews so look for that in the next uh short period ahead we will be posting them on the website and i also want to encourage all the listeners who've been inspired to give to global green grants and you can see that you're making a difference all around the world You're listening to KGNU. Thank you to my guest, Terry Odendal, Executive Director and CEO of Global Green Grants. If you have comments about this or any other show on KGNU, please leave a comment to be aired Tuesday mornings. You can do that, a recorded comment, at 303-447-9911. And an archive of this show will be on our new news blog, News. KGNU.org. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nikki Kaiser. Tune in next week for another edition of Hemispheres. <laughs>